Welcome to Soundprint. I'm Barbara Bogave. Almost immediately after the planes hit their targets on 9-11, you heard people saying it. This is like Pearl Harbor all over again. And in some ways it was. An unthinkable attack, a blood-soaked landmark in our country's history. The occasion for anxious uncertainty about what would come next. That was the legacy of 1941 and of 2001. But at a certain point, the analogy wears thin. The world is not a very different place than it was before 9-11. We've simply become more aware of the United States' troubled position in it. 9-11 did not pave the way for a clear course of action in war. Instead, it's plunged us into a long, murky, and contradictory struggle against a hydra-headed, invisible foe. Sadly, what has turned out to be most apt about the Pearl Harbor comparison is that just as Japanese Americans were persecuted and interrogated after Pearl Harbor, so have a whole wide swath of Muslims, people from Middle Eastern and North African nations, immigrants and asylum seekers, suffered since 9-11. They're being treated in ways which betray everything we uphold as democratic and emblematic of our nation's values. They're subjected to racial profiling, they're ostracized, they're held prisoner without due process, they're considered guilty until proven innocent. On today's show, from producer Ra Mikuria, Japanese Americans and Muslim Americans stand face-to-face and offer their stories, along with their pleas that history not repeat itself. My son had just woken up, and I had him in my arms, and the phone rang, and my sister-in-law was calling me from Texas. She said, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. So I didn't even have my contacts in, so I could barely see. So I had the TV on, and I was sort of squinting and looking really close at it, and I see these, like, flaming buildings and... You know, just so many things went through my mind at that moment, and I really felt like a double whammy because I'm like, I'm afraid that I'm going to be in a building that's going to get hit at some point, you know. And then there's just the sheer sadness that I felt for the people that were involved, and then there was this, you know, like impending sort of doom for what's going to happen to the Muslims, Muslim community in America. When uh, Pearl Harbor <coughs> was bombed, uh, on a Sunday, we are going home from church, and there was just a bunch of young people in the car. We stopped at Curry's Ice Cream Store to indulge, and uh, someone came in and saying that Pearl Harbor was bombed. And uh, our immediate reaction wasn't, gosh, you know, something like that. Uh, we heard it, and we thought about it, and then uh, we thought that was kind of a stupid thing the Japanese were doing, but. Uh, it didn't occur to us right away that this meant war. I was um, working on a legal case. Uh, it was a New York law firm which was located in One Chase, Manhattan. And in fact, we stayed at a hotel right across the street from uh, the World Trade Center. And my father, who's also a lawyer, had flown from Egypt to work on this case. We were in New York for the whole week, staying in this hotel, uh, going meeting with lawyers and, and so on and so forth. And one day before the terrorist attack, Monday, I believe, I returned to Los Angeles and my father returned to Egypt. And um, I was uh, asleep. My wife woke me up and she, um, she said, Khaled, I don't think after hearing this, you will want to go back to sleep. Um, and then she told me, and she was right, I didn't go back to sleep. It happened on a Sunday morning, and this fruit vegetable stand that I worked at was closed on Sundays. 
But on that particular Sunday, we were asked to come out and help decorate the store for Christmas. So we were all there. When this uh, owner's friend came over and started talking about Pearl Harbor, and my boss happened to be married to a uh, Hawaiian Japanese, so he knew where Pearl Harbor was right away. What I, what I remember is that he just sat down and said something about, boy, they sure had a lot of guts. I don't remember if he said it in Japanese or English, but um, we never finished decorating the store. I was in bed and I woke up to my roommate screaming in the living room. I guess she had the TV on. And we have a small TV, so I'm you know, peering in and trying to see like what is going on. And she's hysterical, and I can't get any kind of answer from her. And um, right then, it was like 7.40ish, one of them came down. And then I just was like, oh my god. And I think it was on CBS, because I remember Dan Rather's voice saying something like, the Palestinian terrorist organization Hamas has taken credit for this. We think, we believe. And when I heard that, I absolutely lost it and was like, oh no, you know, it's, it's starting already. I was at Washington DC, appointment to meet the president. And needless to say that the appointment was postponed, uh, but this is where I was heading at anyways. We arrived to Washington uh, 9-10 in the evening. Uh, in the morning, we were getting ready for the meeting, then we heard the news. As a matter of fact, I was quite close to the Pentagon area, and uh, it was quite a shock. We were working on the farm, and uh, we didn't have a radio, and so we didn't hear about it until the next day when I went to school, and it, it was really very strange. The whole atmosphere had changed, you know, and I found that those who were my friends weren't talking to me, you know, or they even pretended they weren't even seeing me, and I thought, gee, this is really weird. And so I uh, asked one of the, my Nisei friends, and she thought I was so stupid. I mean, <laughs> she said, you mean you didn't know what's been happening? No, where is Pearl Harbor anyway? You know, I said, well, it's not gonna, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's, I'm an American citizen. But that wasn't the case, of course. I knew the student lounge would have a TV. And that was the first time I saw images of the actual thing with the plane hitting and um, people jumping out of the 90th floor. And, and I mean, I was just sobbing because I couldn't believe I couldn't believe that people were dying like that. I mean, it was so unbelievably sad. And then after a while, I just kind of felt extremely claustrophobic because the atmosphere in the lounge was beyond tense. And right then, this one guy who was standing a few feet away said, they should just nuke the whole Middle East. And when he said that, I was like, I can't handle this. Um, so you're really stricken with grief. At the same time, you're, you're afraid of people's reactions and this thing that is just snowballing. So I just called my mom and said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving school. And I drove up to San Jose for six hours and spent a week at home. For the first time, I was called a Jap. 
you know, I was playing outside on the street with my brother and uh, somebody called me a Jap. And I didn't know what a Jap was. I didn't know what it meant. I asked my mother and my mother was uh, ashamed and reluctant to tell me what it meant. She just uh, kind of ignored it, but uh, I knew it wasn't a, a complimentary term because it was said with uh, anger and hostility. At first I couldn't understand what we had done wrong. Um, but we just knew that people were angry at us. We didn't know why. Uh, and so we had to protect ourselves from that. So we didn't feel safe, you know, in public anymore. The word fear describes everything. There is fear of fellow citizens being killed. There is fear that you yourself will be the subject of a terrorist attack. I mean, is the terrorism doesn't have an exemption clause for Arabs or Muslims. If, if, if I was on that plane that day, the fact that I would, Arab or Muslim, would have made an iota of a difference. You run the risk of being the victim of a terrorist attack as much as any other member of society, but you now also run the risk of being blamed for it just simply by the fact that you're Arab or Muslim. The confidence and the forthrightness with, with which I had led my life up to that point basically shattered in an instant. And I, I felt fear, real fear, for the first time in my life. I didn't want to drive my car by myself. I didn't want to go out at night because I had heard stories, friends, who had been harassed while walking on the street, who had been you know, called names, go home, go back to your country, or spit upon, or even worse, attacked, physically attacked. And so just fear for my own physical safety became an issue, whereas it had, had never really been an issue like that before. It was pouring rain, and I was supposed to take the bus home uh, from school. And I, I, to get out of the rain, I stepped into a, a porch area waiting for the bus to come. And all of a sudden, I looked over, and this woman threw her window open and screamed at the top of her lungs, get off my porch, you dirty Jap. And I was like terrified that I had done something wrong, that uh, something was wrong with me, and that she might hurt me, because she had the ugliest contorted look on her face. Uh, of course, all she did then was close the window and go away, but I had uh, nightmares about her face for months afterwards. After 9-11, there was about a week where I didn't go out, mostly for fear of the reaction, because really it was a matter of whether or not wearing the scarf would somehow put me in harm's way. And I remember in, during the Gulf War, I was in college in Boston, and a friend and I were walking down the street and a game had just let out from Fenway Park and you know we got we got harassed and a, a fellow came up to us and you know threatened to rip our scarves off and that sort of thing and of course in college you know I had my combat boots and I was just like gung-ho person so I was like I talked back to him and I wasn't afraid but I'm a mother now I have a child and I just I don't although I would defend him I don't even want to be put in a position where I have to do that I started wearing the scarf a week before I graduated from high school, so I've been wearing it for about seven years now. I don't think that there would be any way for me to ever take it off at this point 
it's 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 part of it's part of how I dress, you know. It'd be like someone getting ready in the morning and going to school and not putting a shirt on. So, I mean, I never really thought about taking the scarf off, but I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go to the grocery store by myself. I didn't really go to the mall. I couldn't study in coffee shops for a while. And it wasn't just me. Even my friends who don't wear scarves, you know, we, we called ourselves as being put under house arrest for a little while just because because of what was going on in the country and like the uncertainty of whether or not people on the street are going to react negatively to you because either you wear a scarf or you just look foreign. You know, we didn't want to put ourselves in that kind of danger. It's always anxiety producing, not for the, not just for the normal security concerns, but uh, because it's an unknown sum. You just don't know whether you're going to run into someone who's going to say something rude, something hurtful, whether you're going to sit next to someone who asks to change seats, which has happened to me, uh, because they, they, they don't feel comfortable sitting next to you. Every time you pick up something from your travel bag or you take out a magazine or you take out a book, they, they look like they're going to have a heart attack or you know, constantly uh, uh, staring at you. Um, it, it just, it's an extremely anxiety-producing experience. You never knew when your father was going to be taken away. And uh, Mr. Saiki got picked up off the farm, our neighbor. Mr. Okazaki was taken away. And they, they, they would take an old car battery or pick up a flashlight or something for evidence. You know? And it was very tragic when Mr. Iwasa, after he was harassed by the FBI, committed suicide. He hung himself in the barn. They came in and really fear struck. I remember my father wasn't allowed to move around, but we were. And they started asking him questions. They tipped over the sofa, slashed the bottom with a knife to see if anything was hidden there. I remember they, um, the FBI men even went to the back of the home and um, I thought, you know, like a, a child will think maybe they're after my piggy bank, but he asked if it was mine, and sure it was mine. He says, you're a citizen, so he didn't touch that. Then he went to my brother's room, and they came out with nothing. But my father was, I remember, caught with a lot of money. I really don't even know whether it was 200 or $400 in his pocket. In those days, to a child, it just seemed like an awful lot of money. And, of course, they took that, put that in a bag, and um, he was hauled away. My cousin, he's a consultant for IBM, and he was in Colorado working uh, with a client uh, when September 11th happened, and he was unable to fly home for the next five, six, seven days, I don't remember how much, that the air airports were shut down. When he was finally able to fly home, he was detained by the FBI based on the, the sound of his name. They checked his, his whole background. They got his entire uh, immigration history. They found out where his parents are from. And it was just a shocking experience for him to go through, um, to be targeted based on his appearance and his name alone. And so at, at this point, I, kn I knew that I, that was the new reality that I would have to live with, the fact that being of a certain ethnicity, or not even being of a certain ethnicity, but looking a certain way, 
having a certain skin color and having a, a foreign sounding name was enough to make me the enemy or make me a target for harassment or for people's anger. It was devastating though when the FBI agent came to our home and started to go through all our belongings. And so the FBI came up and said, Mr. Noguchi says, we see that you were involved in the martial arts and have you been involved in any other activity? Well, my father told the FBI agent that that was the only thing that I was involved as far as the community. The FBI had information of the time, from the time my father arrived in the United States to that day, they had kept track of what he was doing. It's amazing how much the FBI knew. Three of them came to our house. My brother Steve, who was already in the service, he'd volunteered after Pearl Harbor. And he left this old broken radio, you know. And uh, that agent took it all apart, then went outside and checked the house and checked the yard, you know, for wires, I guess. And then one was in my little bedroom. And he checked under the bed and between the mattresses and all the drawers, and he found my diary. And I was just totally embarrassed. I just wanted to go, run in there and grab it away from him, you know. And then I knew, you know, I knew that if I did something rash, we would get in more trouble. So I just sat there and gripped my teeth, and I just hoped that he would find it boring and put it away, but he didn't. <laughs> he just kept reading it and reading it. Well, I was just sitting there, humiliated and embarrassed, and angry. And uh, all three of them got together and talked, you know, discussed what their findings, I guess, see. And then finally, they just, they left like we weren't even there. And the last guy patted my mother on the head. She was sitting by the door and said, good Christian family, and left. I'm a seventh grader, and all through the seven years of school, we were taught that the individual had their rights and everybody was equal. And here this order comes out saying that we had to move out. We looked at the crop. The crop was doing so well, and we thought, well, finally, the crops would produce enough so that we can have a little money. And having a large family, money was a very important thing for us. So I was on my hands and knees pulling the weeds when that executive order came out. I dropped my little shovel and I went home. I was devastated. You know, until the very last minute, I said, this can't happen, this is unconstitutional, and something will happen, that's the thought. Somebody will come running down the railroad tracks, you know, like the movies, and say, this is unconstitutional, you can all go home. When that, when that train started to move, I just collapsed. I just cried and cried and cried. We were in Poston uh, at this camp, this internment camp, as they called it, 
But we would go to school as children, pledge allegiance to the flag while guards were watching us, right? And we would sing God Bless America and all these things that we were doing on the outside, but it became very absurd doing it inside the camp when you're, you're at the mercy of the government and they, they're basically prisoners of war, and yet you're pledging allegiance to the very government that put you there. So at the time, as children, I didn't, didn't understand that, of course. We sang, we pledged allegiance and all, did all of that, but it was later as I went to school and high school, later on as a young adult, I started to think about that. And that's when the anger and the injustice of what happened really began to surface. For the Japanese Americans, they collected them physically, interned them in camps, and closed the gates. For us, they did not do that yet. Nonetheless, they created a virtual camp around us, it is almost identical, but the methods are refined. The methods now, now are more refined, more sophisticated, and more polished. You have to keep uh, being very careful about your statements. And if you are not, uh, you, you are questioned. Uh, you still find people in the street who might tell you, why don't you go home, uh, as if this is not home. And uh, there is a feeling that you have to justify and to clarify your statements. If we allow this, we are in a camp. Well, we had to sacrifice three years and eight months of our lives because of the war, and it's lost. You can never recapture that, those almost four years. And you try to go on with your life, but every now and then you think about what could I have done during those three years and eight months if I wasn't in camp? So it's, it's a kind of a two-way thing, too, that maybe in some ways we were in camp for a reason, and yet you feel that uh, you were deprived and that the civil rights and the Constitution was violated. Under certain circumstances, I think what happened to the Japanese Americans can happen to any group. We see part of that jingoism and patriotism today, and um, it, it could happen again. It's true that if you don't remember the past, that things will happen again, and you repeat the mistakes of the past. And, and I think uh, the Japanese Americans almost have a duty to step forward and make sure that it doesn't happen to another ethnic group. It was such a waste. I mean, we talk about the economy or the money, the government money, how, mis how much this must have cost to intern 120,000 you know, Japanese Americans and the pain that it left each and every one of the family. I doubt if anybody could say what we, we gained, but it was very disrupting. And for my family, I still, as 60 years later, I, it hurts me to think what my father had to go through. He worked so hard and helped the community, but he lost everything. The fact that I'm a Muslim doesn't make me as a person any different from anybody else. The fact that I 
wear an extra piece of clothing on my head doesn't make me any different. And people don't seem to understand that. I've lived here all my life. And even if I hadn't lived here all my life, I'm, I'm not any different. Too many lives were affected. Too much, too much property was lost. Um, it, was, it was not good in, in, in any respect that way. Education, for example, many people, their education was cut off. Uh, kids in high school, for example, went to camps and there was like uh, almost a jerry-built high school there. They used whoever they could recruit to come and teach in a, in a godforsaken place. Uh, so I think too many lives and too much opportunity and such were restricted, cut down, cut out. You might have bought a refrigerator, you know, what are you going to do? You can't take it with you. Um, so it was a critical time. And I think every family can tell you about losses. They're going through the same thing we went through 60 years ago. And I feel that uh, no matter what, we have to educate the American people to let them know that they're still Americans and they're human beings. The history should never repeat itself. And uh, what happened in the past, if we realize that it is wrong, it should never happen again. Uh, I liked very much the slogan, never again, uh, for the Jews. Uh, I, I, I just feel that it should be for everybody. And what happened to the Japanese Americans should be a never again. Uh, what happened to the Jews in the uh, Holocaust should be a never again. And we can only do that by studying history in an objective way. As they say, the history of the, of the jungle will change if the animals of the jungle write it, not the hunters. To put people behind barbed wire fences with um, armed guards is not part of the Constitution. And if somebody wants to protect us, there's other ways of doing it. And I don't believe it for a second that they did it because they cared about us. You know, when the government violates your rights, uh, they're not doing you any favors. People lost their jobs, they lost uh, their fortunes, they lost everything they had. But I know one thing, if it ever happened again to anybody else, any other group, I'll be out there protesting against it. Face to Face was originally created for the World Wide Web. It's an electric shadows project created and produced by Rob Micaria and presented by ITVS Interactive with funding provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For the full interactive web experience, visit www.itvs.org. If you miss part of this program or you'd like to hear it again, you can visit us online at soundprint.org. Soundprint's internet service is provided by ToadNet, internet connectivity for people like you. More information at www.toad.net. Soundprint is produced by the Soundprint Media Center in association with WAMU and American University. Next week on Soundprint, young Latinas share their stories of acceptance, identity, and being American enough. Growing up in D.C., I mean, I guess it was um, kind of hard because the only Hispanics that were like in my elementary school were me and my brother and my sisters, and then everybody else was, they were like blacks. I mean, when I was younger, I was more accepted, you know, with the Hispanics. But now that, you know, that I grew up some, I guess I'm accepted by everybody. That's next time on Soundprint. 
CDs are available. They cost $12.50. You can order a CD with a credit card. Call us toll-free at 1-888-38-TAPES. That's 1-888-38-TAPES. Or order online at soundprint.org. If you'd like to be reminded of upcoming programs or maybe have questions or comments for us, please email us at talkback at soundprint.org. That's talkback at soundprint.org. Soundprint is technical director Anna Maria DeFreitas, associate producer Sage Kanan, production assistant Anu Yadav, and sound engineer Jared Weisbrot. Our executive producer is Moira Rankin. I'm Barbara Bogave. <laughs>